Welcome, Neil. Thank you for suing Spotify. This is hell. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. And not only is the planet on fire from global warming that, that's led to climate change, but we're still fueling that fire by tearing down rainforests in order to make room for more fossil fuel extraction, despite the world now being keenly aware that climate change is here and already threatening life on Earth. Temperatures are rising as our sea levels. Lawsuits are moving forward against oil companies over what they knew and when about climate change and the disinformation campaign they've been conducting ever since. Indiana's state legislature refused to consider any new legislation on climate change despite student demands. Paris may need to unearth a river they buried under the city a hundred years ago to fight climate change. While the western U.S. is facing another round of blackouts due to climate change, Africa is trying to balance their fight against global warming with their need for greater accessibility to electricity. Even the upcoming Winter Olympics in China are being threatened by climate change, and not only this year's Winter Olympics, but all future Winter Games moving forward are being threatened by our warming planet, which would seem to be the least of our worries, but is definitely a harbinger of things to come. And those are just today's headlines on climate change. I'm sure tomorrow we'll have a full new batch of headlines on climate change that even give more stark warnings with so many challenges and such heightening concern over the climate you'd think rainforest deforestation especially tropical deforestation in places like the amazon would be at the top of the world's concerns especially when those forests are being replaced by the work of extractive industries still seeking more fossil fuels to burn thus contributing to climate change at record-setting levels. This deforestation not only threatens the world's fight against climate change, but it threatens the lives and culture of indigenous and forest-dwelling people, the very people who can protect the rainforest from further destruction. However, like all of us, they have basic needs that need to be fulfilled, and unfortunately for many in the Amazon, those basic needs are being fulfilled by the very industry that threatens their lives and homes today, the gas and oil industry. So how can we protect the people who can protect us from deforestation? Well, that's exactly what today's guest wanted to know, so he traveled to Peru to ask indigenous people what they need most to help them save the rainforest. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Ashwin Ravikumar, who wrote the Trouble article to save the rainforest, provide health care, education, and services for those who protect them. The $20 billion Glasgow Pledge for Tropical Forests and Indigenous People falls dangerously short. An article you can find at thetrouble.com. That's the-trouble.com. Ashwin is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Amherst College. His research interests involve deforestation in the Amazon. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, what's new by you? Uh, yeah, so we had a weird episode this weekend. What's uh, that? With our janitor at the place where we live. Okay. So our janitor lives in the building, 
um, which is kind of cool. Um, and he's always working. He does a pretty good job at, at you know, janitorial duties. Right. Uh, like, whenever there's the first slightest dusting of snow on the ground, he will be out there shoveling. And so I had a slightly longer conversation with the man, and I found out that, A, he lives in, in, in an apartment that is basically half the size of ours and pays about as much rent as we do. Wow. And, uh, and then also I found out that this is not really his job, but that the landlords just knock off $300 of his rent. And now I'm kind of still wondering what we can do about that because that just seems unfair. Yeah, that does seem really unfair. How big is your building? How many units? Uh, 20 units. Jeez, yeah, a friend of mine was a building manager in a building like that. So what they did was they gave him free rent in a garden apartment and then I think they gave him like an additional hundred or a couple of hundred bucks a month. It wasn't enough for him to, it wasn't like a full-time job, but he got free rent and he got, you know, some kind of stipend at least. That doesn't seem fair at all that he'd be paying any rent whatsoever, let alone something that's close to yours. That's ridiculous, especially for a place that's half the size. Is it a garden apartment that he lives in, too? Yeah, yeah, that's the garden apartment. Always, and, out, and right in the front, I bet, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yep, pretty that's much. the way it is. They put the uh, building managers right there so they can see who comes and goes. And uh, the guy I knew who was a building manager, it really worked out well for him because he was also the building's drug dealer. While you may be listening to this on Saturday morning during our world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell, which airs every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment. We are currently recording this live and live streaming at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after at the same place. We're recording this on Wednesday morning, and right now it is a brisk 5 below 0 Fahrenheit for those of you who live in the future and use Celsius. That is between 20 and 21 degrees below zero. Although it seems to have been warm, warming up and it's now up to a balmy one below Fahrenheit. In other words, it's freaking cold outside. Luckily, I only live one block from the studio, but if I lived much further, much farther than that, I would have definitely tried to get a ride because it is brutal outside and it's not supposed to get back above zero until this weekend. Although it might get up to about one degree today. It's so cold that when I went to put the recycling on the back porch this morning, my cold, wet hand froze to the storm door handle temporarily, and I had to pull it off. I've had that feeling many times in my life before. But man, it's frightening every time you think you're going to be stuck there forever. But more important than it being absolutely frigid outside, Sebastian, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, um, uh, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? Do we have any responses so far? You want to share just a couple? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, Wojciech R. says, uh, when I get an official diagnosis of agoraphobia. <laughs> that makes sense. The fear of everything. David J. says, once the World War III starts and we will all descend into our vaults. <laughs> I'm working on my vault. Egan S. says, when they cattle prod me into the antibiotics pen and then down the chute for work release. <laughs> kind of looks like 12 monkeys. Kind of sounds like a slaughterhouse. Uh, Marco G says, loudspeakers will say the pandemic is over <laughs> and everyone will stop whatever task they're doing, throw their face masks to the sky and cheer. I don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, when they even have a tornado warning and the tornado warning alarms go off, uh, I have a siren right outside my back door at the local uh, 
Park Fieldhouse and uh, Chicago Park District Fieldhouse, and nobody reacts whatsoever. They just think that the Bears won or something. Any more you want to share? Or do you want to wait? Uh, let's let's wait a bit. I mean, we have a few th- few to this. This was a this was apparently a pretty popular one. All right, we'll get back to it after our guest, sure. the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, wins your choice of what whatever this is hell swag you want. That this is hell T-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, which comes in a couple of different colors. The winter beanie or toque, if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And special thanks to Jane in Chicago who went to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and picked up a This Is Hell trucking cap as well as a This Is Hell tote bag. I say special thanks to Jane because of the last 25 contributors, 25 supporters who have shown their support for thisishell.com by going to support and picking up some of our merchandise, Jane is only the second one from Chicago. Only the second one from Illinois of the last 25 supporters we've had. It's almost as if the show is getting more of an international or national recognition than it is here in Chicago. So again, thanks to Jane in Chicago, and I hope you enjoy your trucking cap and this is hell tote bag. When you go grocery shopping, people will now stare at you very oddly when using your this is hell tote bag. Or at least I've been told. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, and we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff continues to try to spread positivity. Who knew that he was doing that all along? Alex will have more of your answers to this. Alex, Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our conversation with Ushwin on Ushwin on deforestation, you can email us your thoughts to the show or uh, post them on Facebook, message them to us on Facebook, or direct message them to us on Twitter. And we got a guest suggestion from Natasha A, who writes, "Hey ya." I'm a linguist, and another linguist, Jesse Greiser, just published an amazing book on race and language and gentrification and changing urban landscapes in D.C., but definitely applicable elsewhere. I'd like to suggest her, suggest her as a guest. You can find Jesse on Twitter at Jess Greiser, G-R-I-E-S-E-R. Solidarity, Natasha. Natasha then gives us a link to the book, The Black Side of the River, Race, Language, and Belonging in Washington, D.C. by Jessica Greiser. Here's the blurb the publisher offers at the book's webpage. In The Black Side of the River, Jesse Greiser combines careful sociolinguistic analysis with impressive argumentation about the nature of race and place in urban America, all conveyed in a vivid, accessible style. The book is bursting at the seams with telling details from the linguistic practices of black residents in Washington, D.C.'s Anacostia neighborhood, creating a richly rendered portrait of lived experience in a rapidly shifting cityscape. The quote comes with a Ben Zimmer blurb who is apparently a language columnist. Like me, you may not have heard of language columnists, which makes where Ben works even more interesting. The Wall Street Journal. To sum up, Natasha, a linguist, suggested a linguist to be on the show to, to discuss a book on race and language that is endorsed by a language columnist 
in the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for the guest suggestion, Natasha, and uh, of all the ways that we have discussed race on the show, I do not think we've discussed language, and I'm especially interested in gentrification. Uh, Ever since we spoke with Roberto Lovato on the Alt-Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness, I've been thinking about Roberto describing how gentrification replicates colonialism, including the original inhabitants' displacement. We got another guest suggestion, that this one from uh, Andrew C. in Columbia. Andrew writes, Dear Chuck, longtime listener, first-time guest suggester, I was enjoying Peter James Hudson on Haiti and Frederick Douglass, your conversation with him on the show. His account of Panama left me wondering, though. For more on Panama, you might invite the author of this book. Andrew then sends a link to the 2019 book, Erased the Untold Story of the Panama Canal by Marika Lasso. Andrew writes, she is now based in Panama and also lectures and writes on independence as well. The book is a detailed account of the people and towns wiped out by the creation of the canal. She's a native of Panama. I don't know her, but I'm friends with her younger sister, a biologist here in Colombia. Thanks so much for all the great work over the years. Please never go off the air. Air, greetings from Colombia, your fan, Andrew. P.S. I completely disagree with you and, and your guests on Venezuela, but hey, if we agreed on everything, how boring would that be? Andrew, wait, you disagree with me and the people who are on our show, our guests, you disagree with them on Venezuela? First of all, I have an opinion on Venezuela. Who knew? Also, we got a linguist suggesting a fellow linguist, and now someone is suggesting the younger sister of a friend, but the book actually does sound really good, although it is three years old, which leads us back to the old question, should we have guests on the show whose book has not been published recently? And we got a guest suggestion from Nathan B., who writes, Dear Chuck, I hope this message finds you well. Well, kind of well. My stomach's killing me. As a longtime fan of the show, I am writing to suggest a guest who is one of many authors in the forthcoming collected volume titled Degrowth and Strategy, How to Bring About Social Ecological Transformation. I'm on the editorial team of the book, along with seven other people, and we have worked for the last year and a half at putting this book together. You can read more about our team, the motivation behind our work, our processes so far, the chosen publisher, and the organization behind the book by going to degrowthvienna.org, where there's a link to our book. The book will be printed in May 2022, and we are currently finalizing the manuscript, so I'm writing to ask if you would be interested in interviewing one of the authors in the collected volume later in the year, once the book has been published. We thought it would be fitting that you interview one of the authors who has been on your show previously. Susan Paulson. We thought this would fit well since she has previously discussed the key ideas behind degrowth on your show, and this would be a chance to explore the question of how to make this radical transformation possible. Thanks for all the amazing work you put into the show that so many like myself get to enjoy. Looking forward to your reply. All the best, Nathan. And Nathan is correct. We did interview Susan Paulson back in November of 2020 to discuss a book she co-authored, The Case for Degrowth. Susan was joined on that show by one of her co-authors, Georgos Kallis. You can find that interview at thisishell.com when searching on Susan's last name. Again, Paulson, P-A-U-L-S-O-N. Thanks for the suggestion, Nathan. We'll check out the table of contents that you sent and look through the essays and contributors. And in May, when your book is published, we'll go back to discussing degrowth on the show because lately... Some have been writing that degrowth is impossible if we are to transition to clean energy, that the transition in and of itself means 
growth must continue. So it would be great to get back to the topic considering the more recent challenges to the idea of degrowth. We'll have more of your uh, feedback following our conversation with Ushwin on tropic deforestation. Remember how I had no idea what blockchain socialism means or who Howard Taylor is or was? Well, listeners tried to explain blockchain socialism to me, and I still don't get it. And I now know who Harold Taylor is, and like you, I will never forget it. We also have a very kind listener who was concerned about my most recent issues with my stomach, which I've been flaring up again this morning, and as an alternative medicine they think may be my savior. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. The recent climate change talks in Glasgow were labeled as historic by some, with new and renewed promises to address climate change globally by the biggest historic producers of climate change causing emissions. They even pledged billions to protect rainforests from destruction. The problem is, we've heard similar promises in the past, and at this very moment, rainforests are being torn down to make room for more resource extraction, resources that are converted into fossil fuels and then burned at record-setting rates, thus continuing the spiral of deforestation and climate change. Here to help us understand this ongoing problem better and to help us figure out what can be done to address it, Ashwin Ravikumar wrote the Trouble article to save the rainforest, provide health care, education, and services for those who protect them. The $20 billion Glasgow pledge for tropical forests and indigenous people falls dangerously short, which you can find at thetrouble.com. That's the hyphen trouble.com. Welcome to being on the air here on This Is Hell, Ashwin. Hey, Chuck. Great to hear from you. It's, it's been too long. Oh, my God. I can already hear the smile on your face. It's always great to talk with you. It's always great to see you. Ushwin is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Amherst College. But more important than any of that, and this never happens, I have actually physically met today's guest face-to-face, albeit prior to the pandemic. Ushwin was a semi-regular at the This Is Hell office hours, which was our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think, which prior to the virus... That was held every Wednesday evening at the bar downstairs, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago's far north side in the West Ridge neighborhood. We are hoping we can return to hosting office hours soon, and we are still hoping against hope that we can finally host our listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show. This is Art on Saturday, July 23rd, so stay tuned in for news on both during upcoming shows. Ashwin, it's great to hear from you, and uh, I really do miss office hours. I really miss hanging out with you back in the beer garden. I really enjoy it. I, I miss them too, and it's obviously, in the grand scheme, a lesser consequence of the pandemic, but I am right now very much lamenting the loss of office hours. Um, I visited Chicago a couple times in the last year, and every time the pandemic has thwarted those types of small joys that I get out of those visits. So hope here's hoping to more in the future. Let's uh, next time that you're in town, please contact me and I'll, we'll make some effort to hang out over here, even if it's in a smaller crowd. You you, totally. write, you begin by writing while world leaders met in Glasgow to announce a new pledge of $20 billion to protect tropical forests as a centerpiece of international climate mitigation policy in November of 2021. You were visiting with indigenous 
Mechaguanga uh, communities in the Peruvian Amazon district of Echarate. Uh, given that uh, tropical deforestation produces more emissions than almost any country, uh, stopping it must indeed be a priority for global climate policy. While you agree that programs to protect tropical forests should be a priority, how much is $20 billion when it comes to protecting these forests? How much can you protect tropical forests with $20 billion? Not a lot at all. So yeah, this is a really good starting point, I think. And I, I want to talk more about what the kind of positive solutions uh, ought to be. But there's a really uh, long history at this point of at least 15, 20 years of market-based solutions from international policy kind of forums like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that basically seek to raise funds from the private sector and to a lesser extent from uh, aid organizations from global North countries uh, to pay people who deforest in the global South and tropical forest countries to not deforest. And so it all really started to burst onto the global scene back in 2006 uh, when Lord Stern, a British Lord, wrote the Stern Report. And basically what that said, this is a year after An Inconvenient Truth came out. This is when you know global leaders are starting to step up their at least ostensible interest in addressing climate change. And this report basically said that one of the cheapest ways that we can address climate change is to you know, not degrow our economies, throw back to the kind of degrowth work you were just talking about at the top of the show, uh, not to restructure European economies and the United States economy to reduce emissions at home, but to pay uh, folks who own and governments that control tropical forests to not cut them down. And so this led to a flurry of activity at the international level to create market-based frameworks to channel funds uh, into the service of protecting forests. And what that ended up doing uh, is pilot, it led to a, a kind of slew of pilot projects in uh, tropical forest countries that built on a pretty long legacy of so-called integrated conservation and development projects that basically tried to pay smallholder farmers uh, to produce more with less land uh, and to deforest less. Now, all of this was built on an assumption that I think is pretty wrong, um, and it varies from place to place, but the assumption is that uh, smallholder farmers and actually indigenous people are responsible for the vast majority of tropical deforestation. And so we need to change, and by we, I mean global north kind of people, need to change their behavior so they deforest less. In fact, uh, a lot of deforestation increasingly comes from large plantations, uh, big agricultural firms, extractive industries, and certainly not from smallholder farmers who have actually protected forests. So all of this money, and we're talking to the tune of, again, billions of dollars, single, maybe double-digit billions of dollars, was funneled into projects that kind of extended what had already been happening, which is getting coffee farmers a little bit more money and resources to do sustainable agriculture, uh, paying people that are doing shifting cultivation to uh, be more sedentary in their practices, and overall, we've had very little to show for that over the last several decades. What we don't see a lot of uh, is funding for big programs that provide things like healthcare, education, and services that meet, that meet the basic needs of people who live in tropical forests. Um, so they don't need to seek incomes from uh, deforesting more. And more importantly, perhaps, is big, bold regulations that stop extractive industries from creeping ever more into the forest frontier. Um, so what we've actually seen is an increase in deforestation over the last several years. And uh, that 
kind of underlies the fact or shows the shows how little some of these big international initiatives that are market-based have done and why we need to look to alternatives. So how successful has industry been at blaming indigenous people for causing deforestation rather than them? How, how successful have they been at uh, deflecting and distracting people by blaming it on indigenous culture when in reality it's the industry that's doing most of the deforestation? Yeah. So I think in a lot of cases, they've been very successful. Um, so in Peru, uh, I remember at, in 2014, I was at the international climate negotiations in Lima. Uh, this is one year before the famous or infamous Paris talks in 2015. And there was a giant sign in the government's forest pavilion that said 90% of deforestation in the Amazon is called by, is caused by small scale so-called migratory agriculture. And this is a super loaded term that basically implies that smallholders are responsible for deforestation. And so me and some of my colleagues actually looked into that to question that assumption to see where this was even coming from. And basically what it boiled down to is that they used remote sensing data, so satellite data to look at the Amazon. And what they found is that the vast majority of deforestation incidents in the last several years uh, were small in size, one or two hectares, right? Um, but what that doesn't take into account is that smallholders, indigenous people, uh, often practice shifting cultivation. Um, and so what that means is while you might see a small deforestation event in one year, if you look at the last five years, the last 10 years, in some cases, honestly, centuries, these sort of traditional practices of agriculture, which are absolutely amazing in terms of how much ecological knowledge and wisdom uh, people use to do them, uh, ends up actually diversifying the forest. It ends up causing a lot of regeneration of forests, which is something that's really ignored by international policymakers. Uh, it creates a lot more habitat for uh, wildlife and bio it fosters biodiversity. Um, and it also allows for more fruits, medicinal plants, other stuff that people really use uh, to thrive in rainforests. Um, so it's framed as a really bad thing, but actually it can be evidence of robust stewardship and management practices that are deeply important to people that live there. So it's a very different kind of deforestation, and it's the kind of deforestation that you often hear from indigenous communities here in North America when it comes to controlled burns. So how much do you think that this success that the industry is having at blaming indigenous people, how much do you think that that success they've had in convincing people that it's uh, other people's fault, how much do you think that's based on just simple racism and the continuation of colonial practices? Hugely. So there's a there's a really, really prevalent narrative in kind of international uh, and, and national. This is an idea that has really percolated into the kind of consciousness of a lot of state bureaucrats and folks, including some well-intentioned ones that want to fight deforestation. Um, and that, that sort of logic is basically that indigenous people are backwards, that they don't know how to use land productively, uh, and that they are doing, quote unquote, slash and burn, which is a term that really has very pejorative connotations. Uh, that are bad for the environment, not good for the economy, and ought to be replaced with better technologically more advanced systems for producing things. Um, so, so one pretty important thing to, to know, I think, uh, is that these sorts of older systems or these older international frameworks, one of the big ones that came out of the kind of late aughts was called Red Plus or Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation. Uh, it, that's the big international framework for trying to uh, use market solutions and uh, carbon markets to encourage people or to shift uh, people away from deforesting practices in the global south. 
But at Glasgow, um, one of the sort of new newer acronyms in this alphabet soup of, of uh, approaches to reducing deforestation through markets is called LEAF. They always have fancy names like that. It means lowering emissions by accelerating forest finance. Um, and LEAF is billing itself as the biggest public-private partnership to find that finance large-scale forest protection. And I think it's just really crucial to note that LEAF's participants include some of the world's largest corporate polluters. So it includes Amazon, it includes Unilever, it includes Walmart, it includes Delta Airlines, BlackRock, and more. And this is really the kind of core uh, instrument for reducing deforestation that's coming out of Glasgow. Uh, that was getting celebrated in the media, even as uh, as uh, indigenous people continued to be sidelined by some of these uh, policy discussions. So I think they've been hugely successful at reorienting the discussion in a way that presents solutions that they're amenable to, and ultimately solutions that they themselves are backing, which really ought to be raising our eyebrows. So is blaming indigenous, is that framed within neoliberal individualism instead of collective systemic causes? Is it about trying to avoid any criticism of whatever role capitalism is playing within climate change and global warming? Yeah, big time. So in in Peru and really around the world, I think it's really important that people are aware that since at least the 1970s, really longer, so indigenous resistance movements, um, uh, are, are as old as, as colonization, right? But since the 1970s, indigenous people have actually been really successful at winning huge uh, gains in terms of land rights. And so today, something like 10% of land on earth is uh, controlled legally um, in some way by indigenous people. A lot of that is concentrated in a few countries. So actually China, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Australia, those are some places that have a lot of land that indigenous people control. Um, but there's a lot more land that is still not uh, controlled by indigenous people that they ought to be controlling. Now, as, as a non-indigenous uh, researcher and organizer, uh, I'm fully in solidarity with the most kind of radical land back programs and with the indigenous movements that are calling for full decolonization as well as the support that they need to actually live well with the resources that they have um, according to a logic of repair for the harm that has happened through colonialism. Uh, but in Peru specifically in the 1970s, uh, there was a land reform under Juan Alvarado Velasco who came to power in 1968. He was a leftist kind of uh, leader. And they passed a law that allowed for titling native communities. Um, when he was deposed by a right-wing uh, military coup in 1975 by Bermudez, um, they actually changed that law in a couple of crucial ways. And this is different in different countries, but in Peru specifically, uh, they made it so that indigenous lands that were titled, if the state deems that uh, the land within an indigenous territory is a forest, is technically forest according to the sort of ecological criteria that they use, that land is no longer actually owned by the community at all. They only have usufruct or sort of user rights or leases to use it. And that means that the state can actually penalize them for carrying out certain activities on that land um, and their control over it is, is sort of attenuated. And in the first place in Peru, um, and this was very much a way to sort of make the indigenous movement's demands more amenable to neoliberalism and to capitalism. Uh, they made it so that only very small areas of land around settlements that people have are eligible for title. So in Peru, that means that you might have a small settlement of 
a couple hundred to a couple thousand people uh, that has title collectively to maybe 500 or maybe 1,000, 5,000, 20,000, 50,000 hectares of land, which is relatively small. Meanwhile, in places like Colombia and in Bolivia, uh, you actually have much bigger areas that are titled to communities. And part of the, the issue with this is that this divides communities that are ethnically uh, similar, that have the same language, that have the same customs, that centuries ago would have not viewed land in this sort of atomized way, but seen it as a big territory that they can use uh, to live the way that they want to live. So it's super broken up and it makes it a lot easier for extractive interests to kind of divide and uh, manipulate and uh, insert themselves into these places in a place like Peru. So are borders then an obstacle to fighting climate change? You mentioned how different countries have different approaches. Uh, there would seem to be a need for international cooperation. And with indigenous people, you know, they cross national borders. They don't see themselves as living necessarily within the borders of a nation. So how much is the problem, the lack of international cooperation in the countries where indigenous people live? And is this, uh, can the fossil fuel industry, as you were just implying, can this lead to a race to the bottom when it comes to environmental protections. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. Indigenous land rights that are strong, that are expansive, that come with a lot of support from states and from the global north to actually provide for their needs uh, is a big barrier to access. So empirically, we have really strong data. And this is one of the good things that we kind of know from a lot of research on this. Uh, if you just look, if you don't, don't even think too much about the, you know, on the ground dynamics, but just at a glance from space, if you take a satellite image of the earth and look at where indigenous territories are, titled indigenous lands are in tropical forests. Um, so obviously titling indigenous communities by states and going even further than that is the right thing to do from a you know justice perspective. Um, but it's also super effective for conserving forests. So where larger expansive, uh, strongly protected indigenous rights exist, forests also get protected. And so there's big initiatives in places like the Peru-Colombia border uh, by communities themselves and by indigenous organizations to build coalitions that transcend borders. And the kind of borders of nation states do, I think, present a barrier uh, to getting funding to these groups, right? So there is no organization that transcends uh, these borders that is actually competent to like administer programs that would make people's lives better on both sides of the border. And a lot of times uh, that kind of thing would be really helpful uh, for building a strong, uh, for building strong protection against outside incursion into these lands and for ensuring that the people that live in these places have a high quality of life. And you point out the good news is that we have strong evidence that about which policy instruments are effective in maintaining standing force. As you were mentioning before, there's a growing global consensus that titling indigenous and other forest dwelling commu uh, communities while providing them with the resources to continue to protect their forests and enjoy a high quality of life is one of the best things the international community can do for rainforests. So, Ashwin, why are uh, indigenous and forest dwelling communities best at protecting forests with titled land, are they vulnerable to the same money-making schemes of those who do own those titles today and profit off of resource extraction? Why would the indigenous and forest-dwelling people not pursue the same short-term profits any non-indigenous land landowner has pursued in the past? That is a, a really good question, and there is there really is a you know different opinions among in, indigenous people. There you know indigenous people are not a monolith, and I am a non-indigenous person that has just worked with indigenous folks in the Amazon, and I can't speak for everybody. But 
the fact is that when uh, people share their views about what kinds of lives they want and what kind of future they want, fundamentally, there's a strong consensus that continuing to live uh, with traditions, to continue to have pride in culture, and to continue to have uh, a life in the places that they consider important, sacred, uh, historic, is really, really strong. So there is kind of this con- this this built up idea uh, that people that live in uh, the Peruvian Amazon, for example, are poor and that the pathway to prosperity is basically development, right? And what that looks like, and this is this is something that the conservation organizations have also, I think, really internalized, um, is that the pathway to prosperity is development. So because people are poor, they need more money to get more money. They need help growing more crops that can be sold on international markets, right? So in uh, among the Machi Genga, for example, who I was just visiting with, um, cocoa, right? Cacao is one of the big, big crops there. Um, and when when I've when I've spoken to people, not just in this place, but all over the Amazon, a lot of what I hear is we have a good life here. We have land. Uh, we can actually eat well because we have mixed vegetable gardens. Uh, we have lots of fish in our rivers and oxbow lakes, uh, and we manage secondary forests to produce fruits and other nutritious foods uh, that we have been practicing for generations. Um, and at the same time they lack access to some some things, right? So they lack access to good healthcare services a lot of the time. Uh, they lack uh, bilingual education programs that are culturally relevant. Uh, they often don't have internet, which is increasingly, I think, in this category of essential thing that people need in some, in some of these remote areas. Uh, and they lack good infrastructure to get out and, you know, get to the get to the city for an emergency or to just sort of feel connected. So a lot of times what people sort of say they want is for their kids to get a good education, move to the city and advance, right? And there's this logic of advancing. And in in the best cases, what that can look like is, uh, and this happens in a minority of cases, uh, people from indigenous communities against a lot of odds will get an education, will get a scholarship, go to a city uh, and then become a nurse or an accountant or a teacher or maybe something or even a professor or something like that. But in the majority of cases, leaving the countryside and moving to the cities doesn't mean professionalization. It means proletarianization. Um, and you might end up dra- driving, an, uh, driving a moto taxi or uh, selling um, you know, candies out of a cart. Uh, or doing wage labor in highly exploitative circumstances. And so if people can actually continue to live in subsistence, live subsistence livelihoods in the ways that they have in the past, but have their needs met for healthcare, education, uh, everything else that they've identified as what would be important for a high quality of life, then all of a sudden this sort of need to develop, to make more money constantly, to move to the cities, to urbanize, uh, to basically try to make as much money as possible goes away. And this is really what I saw when I was uh, in uh, in Peru with the Machigenga just now. Um, they really felt strongly, a lot of the folks that I talked to, that so long as their basic needs were met, they weren't looking to expand their cocoa plantations forevermore. They weren't looking to uh, you know, grow more cocoa, hire more hands, and expand forever. Meanwhile, in other places that I've been to where basic needs are even less well met, I actually have heard people say that, yeah, we want to keep expanding these cocoa plantations. We have five hectares now, but I'd like to have 15 hectares. And I'd like to employ people to actually harvest those because a single family can only manage um, a few hectares of cocoa, right? And what that kind of suggests to me is that when basic needs aren't met, it's a lot easier for this logic that you're talking about of trying to exploit 
and expand and grow to take hold. And so a lot of these international conservation programs try to connect conservation with more commodity production so that people have incomes. But this is really counterproductive, I think, because what it does is it hitches the wagon of conservation forever to the sort of need to produce commodity crops rather than simply connecting conservation with the direct provision of people's basic needs through social services. And that has really not been on the table for a long time uh, in international and national policy discussions. And I can imagine when indigenous peoples do move to the city in hopes that they can get a professionalized job and then have remittances sent back home in order for them to support their families, I can imagine that those indigenous people likely face a great deal of job discrimination and end up being underemployed, as you were implying. So how dependent then are, for instance, the Mechiginga uh, cocoa and subsistence farmers, how dependent are they on money from fossil fuel companies for their survival? Oh, in, in this particular place, big time. And I'll, I'll just point out that like uh, this is actually not a place that I've spent as much time as other places. Part of what makes it special is the sort of prevalence of natural gas. Um, a lot natural gas is not everywhere in the Amazon, not not everywhere in the Peruvian Amazon, but that that makes this place actually kind of uh, unique in a certain way. But the answer is hugely. So the natural gas industry, um, I want to say the majority of men I spoke to have done uh, wage labor for them, um, and they actually had not had a terrible experience with it nece- necessarily. Uh, they were able to make decent money. The work was hard. Um, and they also were, were deriving other benefits from the presence of natural gas. Um, part of the reason they were able to get those benefits is because they were really militant in demanding it, right? Um, so in, in one, one really interesting thing that, uh, that a farmer who had worked for the natural gas pipeline told me is that uh, right now the government was coming in with a conservation scheme that offers to pay indigenous communities uh, 10 soles, that's like two or three dollars for each hectare of forest that they preserve above a certain agreed upon historic baseline, which is how a lot of these kind of global market-based conservation programs work. Um, But there's a ton of paperwork that they have to fill out. Uh, They have to show that they've spent that money according to an investment plan. Again, seeing how, showing how conservation is just really always, is often linked to the idea that you also need to be producing and generating income. Um, And if they fail to meet these requirements, the money gets pulled and it's not that much money anyway. So uh, what this person said to me is, why would I fill out all this paperwork for this tiny amount of money from the government when 10 years ago, we turned off the valves to the natural gas pipeline and demanded more funding from the natural gas industry? And to some measure, not in all measure, and I don't want to at all commend the gas industry for this. Um, rather, I want to commend the, the efforts of these mili- militant tactics to, to secure these wins when, when we could get you know millions uh, or you know many orders of magnitude more money by, by, by doing that kind of thing, right? And I think that was a really powerful kind of indicator of how little conservation has had to offer uh, versus fossil fuels. And it's not because fossil fuels were benevolent, but b- because people were able to actually exert some leverage uh, on the fossil fuel industry here. Um, so it's been a huge part of their, of their livelihoods in terms of providing jobs uh, and also in terms of providing uh, direct funding as kind of cuts of what amounts to profit for communities. Natural gas is the transition fuel, the supposed transition fuel that's clean when it's formally known as methane. Uh, so does Peru have a choice when it comes to their economy? Is Peru so economically desperate they have no other option for revenue other than deforestation and 
this fossil fuel extraction of uh, natural gas. How, how few options does Peru have when it comes to finances? Yeah, so th- this is where I think um, what the global north does and what we in the global north ought to do becomes really central. So I, I, when I when I wrote the piece for the trouble, I really tried to focus not on uh, what you know the Peruvian government needs to do, although there is uh, a lot of critique that needs to happen there too. Um, but what the global north needs to do to make alternatives viable. So uh, right now, Pedro Castillo's government um, has actually made plans to expand natural gas production. Uh, In Peru, the population is about 32 million, and there's just a couple million people that have in-home natural gas connections to cook with, right? Uh, What this means is that the majority of people in the country uh, purchase uh, canisters to cook with, right? That are that are pretty expensive and really inconvenient, uh, and in some cases, cook with firewood. So they've made a commitment to expand connections to natural gas, right? And now I think it's pretty important for folks in the global north, environmentalists, you know, folks on the left, et cetera, to be measured and uh, kind of critiquing governments and people in the global south for wanting uh, these kinds of things um, and for p- pursuing these kinds of projects because having a natural gas cook- hookup in your house to cook with is a huge quality of life upgrade, right? Um, it beats the hell out of uh, you know having to buy tanks every day. Um, however, it is pretty bad as a long-term strategy for sustainability, for making sure that the planet is livable. In, fa- in fact, at the global level, what we need to be doing is electrifying everything, including things like cooking. Um, but, that, but that's not what they're looking to do right now. Um, And that is, I think, going to be an issue in the long term, and it's going to give more power to the fossil fuel industry. Now, Castillo has been under pressure from the left to pursue uh, much stronger kind of demands from industry and also to even pursue more public sector power in this area, so more uh, 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 nationalization. Um, That's not really happening anytime soon, but it is part of the discussion. And so to me, I think that a big global Green New Deal would need to provide for people that live in tropical forests um, and also make sure that there is a strong investment right now in not being dependent on fossil fuels. Because once you build millions of natural gas hookups for people to cook with, it's really difficult, it's really expensive to transition that to an electrified system, which is ultimately what we're, we're gonna need globally. Uh, so it's, it's a big problem, and I think it's really incumbent on the global north to be uh, funding these alternatives. Um, in terms of how much it costs, though, to, to provide services for people in the Amazon, so 32 million people in Peru, just a few million in the Peruvian Amazon, even though it's 62% of the land area or something like that. Uh, and about half of the people in the Peruvian Amazon live in cities and towns. The other half are in more remote rural areas. So we're talking about a relatively small number of people that if they were given services uh, and if they were really given what they need to have a high quality of life, and if land rights were really secure and protections against uh, extractive interests, deforesting were really strong, uh, would be a really robust landscape that could actually resist kind of the constant incursion of fossil fuels and would provide, I think, a really strong political bulwark against this perceived need to expand fossil fuels, to expand natural gas, and would give a ton of breathing room to dreaming about alternatives, to putting pressure on the North to fund electrification, rather than trying to do that later once natural gas has already become uh, sort of the entrenched norm. And the benefits that are being given from given by uh, gas and oil companies, you write, apart from official payments to the government, companies also have cut deals independently with communities in exchange for allowing 
pipelines and extractive activities on their lands. These deals have been highly exploitative. And you add that the current leader of one community, one indigenous community, told you that in the mid-2000s, one of the uh, gas transporters offered a low cash payment of just 200,000 soles, which is how much How much money is that in U.S. dollars? Like 50, 50 or $60,000. Yeah, to uh, build a pipeline through their lands. The community accepted this amount as individual payouts. The money was gone within a couple of years with no lasting improvements in quality of life to show for it. In other cases, companies have provided short-term funding of fish farms, but without long-term support for feed or technical support to maintain healthy stocks. So to you, what explains why these deals are so bad? Why can they not get long-term benefits from a consortium whose environmental uh, impact will be long-term, especially for the people living in the region who are getting paid by the consortium? Is there any suggestion that either the government, the consortium, or even the locals have played down the long-term environmental impact of fossil fuel extraction projects? Yeah, so I mean, the government very much played it down in the first place when they struck it, struck this deal with the Kamisea Gas Consortium uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, that was really not part of what they were thinking about at all. Um, but part of the reason why these deals were so exploitative is because these uh, communities had not been accustomed to trying to make these types of negotiations, uh, nor necessarily should they. Um, so there's a, there's a couple levels of, of this. So at the national level, the, the Peruvian state gets a certain cut of uh, funding from, from the natural gas industry, and they also uh, are guaranteed a supply. Um, then there's the district or municipal level where they get a natural gas levy. It's called a canon uh, fund. And that's supposed to be used for services, right? So that's, that's sort of a more direct way to fund things that people need. Uh, a lot of that has been really difficult to manage. Uh, there is evidence of embezzlement. There's losses. Not all the money is accounted for. But some of it at the district level has been used for services, um, things like healthcare, education, et cetera, that people need. These other deals that go directly to communities are really uh, kind of behind the scenes. There's not transparency about them. They are uh, really two-party kind of deals. So. In the early 2000s, when these deals happened, a lot of these communities had never dealt with uh, natural gas industry before, and a lot of them had never seen uh, these amounts of money before, even though they seem relatively small. So it was easy for the gas company to propose something that was really low and expect that communities would simply accept it because it seemed like money. They had a real and perceived need for cash, um, but it didn't go to building any durable infrastructure, providing services, or developing a strategy for, for political advocacy necessarily. Um, but interestingly, several years later, maybe a decade later, uh, this very same community that you're, that you're mentioning there that I, that I visited uh, had learned a few things about how to negotiate with natural gas. They had learned a few things about what kinds of concessions they could get basically from that experience of going to the pipeline, shutting it down, making demands and seeing some concessions made from industry. And they got a lot more money the next time around. And they used that as sort of a slush fund, which came super in handy during COVID-19, during the pandemic. Um, and they also used it to invest in some small infrastructure projects of their own independently that the state really hadn't been helping them with. And this, this does a couple things. So first of all, it, you know, it's, it's good that it shows kind of that people have been negotiating more strongly with the industry. Uh, but what it does is kind of creates a system where independent deals between communities and the gas industry uh, is necessary for them to build, you know, a communal meeting house or improve their school rather than that having be having rather than that being 
something that the state is guaranteeing. And rather than that being something that a conservation agency, for example, that says, hey, we appreciate the work you have done to steward these forests, and we want to provide uh, guaranteed access to services that everyone really deserves. Um, so it's really wedding fossil fuels to basic needs uh, more than it is separating them and putting them in opposition to each other. So was progress not being made in these negotiations until what you mentioned earlier, until the direct sabotage of the pipeline? Did it take sabotage to bring the parties to the negotiating table? And what does that reveal to you about the uh, oil and gas interests in Peru? It reveals, I think, very strongly that oil and gas interests in Peru, and this is true just about everywhere else, are never going to make concessions any more than they have to. And the fact that they had, you know, no social license to operate in this place and the fact that they were uh, getting bad PR, not just from the direct sabotage, but from uh, marches that people organized to the cap to the municipal capital and, and the regional capital uh, in Cusco even, uh, told them that they really needed to, to give a little bit more away. And I think the fact that they were willing to give a little bit more away really underscores that they actually have a lot to give away, right? Because the amount that they are giving to communities surely pales, it, it does pale in comparison to the profits that they are, that they're realizing from these, these activities. But what it really shows, I think, is that it requires big movements to demand concessions from oil and gas. Um, and likewise, we in the global north uh, ought to be working through our movements uh, to make demands of our governments to be supporting uh, what people actually need in places like the Amazon that are so critical for the survival of our species, our planet, other species on the planet as well. So is there a prevailing sense throughout the indigenous community that you spoke with, at least, that the more militant reactions worked and that they will not hesitate to use them again? It, are the indigenous that you spoke with, are they radicalizing because of an inability to redress their grievances? So it's, you know, people have mixed perspectives for sure, but overall the indigenous movement has been really successful at organizing. Um, and there's been a few incidents in recent history in Peru that have been super significant for the indigenous movement. One of the most significant uh, incidents in the last couple of decades was uh, the massacre and conflict at Bagua in the northern Peruvian Amazon in 2009. Um, so around that time, and this is also related to oil and gas, the erstwhile president, Alan Garcia, who actually shot himself in the head uh, before the feds could, or before the you know national police could raid his house a couple years ago, uh, he at the time opened up a bunch of the Amazon to foreign private investment. He passed a suite of executive orders, uh, you know, arguably under the influence of Bush at the time, actually, in the mid 2000s, um, uh, to allow a lot more investment in the Amazon, including by oil and gas interests in uh, an indigenous controlled area that was in the north of Peru, in the, in the uh, region of Amazonas. And so this led to a pretty militant uh, reaction by communities to say, no, we don't want this. This is poisoning our land. And it led to a brutal response by the state. And it was in fact so brutal and people organized, indigenous people organized so successfully to communicate about this that it led to solidarity protests in Lima uh, and a lot of attention around the world to the point that the state had to roll back some of these policies 
at least in the short run. And since then, uh, it has you know really been quite normal for communities to don traditional garb and march to the municipal government to demand better treatment, to demand better uh, deals, essentially. So I think it is really baked, baked into the fabric of how indigenous organizing happens in the Amazon to do this from time to time. But it is really tiresome. It's really costly and it is really uh, under supported. So indigenous federations um, on the ground, the organizations that are kind of at the lower sort of level, the more local level, uh, rarely have funds for permanent staff. They rarely have physical offices and they rarely have enough money even to uh, pay costs of like transportation to get leaders or delegations to capital, to the cities, right? So they are operating at a huge sort of loss, at a huge deficit here when it comes to doing the basic kind of organizing that they need to do. Um, there's a lot of nonprofits that have filled in some of these gaps, uh, but ultimately direct indigenous organizing has been hugely important. It has been in, uh, arguably singularly responsible for a lot of these concessions. Um, and I, I see every reason for that to continue to be the case going forward. And I think that to the extent that folks in the global north want to uh, be in solidarity with this group, with, the, with this movement, finding ways to support directly indigenous organizations that are doing this stuff is, is, uh, is going to be hugely important. And you also point out that if we in the global north are serious about confronting tropical deforestation, we must demand that our governments spend unprecedented resources to meet the needs of indigenous and forest dwelling communities. We should be t talking about tens of trillions of dollars, not $20 billion, in an international effort to repair the historical harm that colonization has caused, while also securing the well-being of the people who protect forests. We ought to be offering a far better deal than the fossil fuel industry is. So are you suggesting a, a kind of reparations that also provides funds for protecting endangered forests, possibly even replanting lost forest land globally? Do you think in order to address climate change comprehensively, we need a kind of colonial reparations? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this actually connects with uh, what a lot of uh, degrowth people have been pointing out and kind of drawing the sketch for. Um, I think that that, that that will ultimately be necessary. Um, I think it's also the right thing to do. And I think it's a moral obligation. Um, it ha nothing like it has been on the table. And I think that this is where folks in global north movements really need to, uh, or have a role to play um, in that we can insist that these types of planks go into the platform for how internationalism really happens. Um, so in, in the 2020 presidential primary, Bernie Sanders, if I'm not mistaken, had about $200 billion in his climate plan allocated to uh, internationalism essentially, right? And that was a lot more than any other candidate was talking about. It's a lot more than is uh, remotely uh, on the table right now, politically under Biden. Um, to me, that's kind of the you know minimum minimum entry point uh, as a starting point. But basically, yes, uh, there is a need for repair. Uh, there is a strong need to think about these issues through the lens of reparations uh, rather than through the lens of compensating people their opportunity costs of deforestation. Right, the way that conservation programs are working right now. Uh, there's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of staffing that's being spent on monitoring exactly how much deforestation has happened in an area over the last, say, 10, 15 years, and then measuring exactly how much deforestation has been reduced by a community or even by a government in the following years to determine exactly how much money should be paid based on the price of carbon. 
And the results of these types of programs have been pretty weak. And more importantly, and I think this gets at what you're sort of asking here, uh, is wrongheaded in its logic because there should be unconditional repair for harm that allows for things that people need to be funded. So again, that's healthcare, that's education, that's uh, infrastructure, that's internet, things that people need to live a good life. Um, and instead, the conservation, the global conservation community has been obsessed with sort of nickel and diming people on the ground, paying them only for how much forest they have demonstrably conserved over some agreed amount, agreed upon amount in the last five years. Um, and that just hasn't been working. So, I mean, another, another example, I think, of really successful policy um, comes from Brazil. So in the 1980s, there was a big movement uh, that emerged in Brazil that knitted in, in the state of Acre in Western Brazil that brought together uh, indigenous people, environmentalists, including kind of the growing global environmentalist movement, uh, and also labor, rubber tappers um, and, and urban workers. Uh, Chico Mendes, who is one of the rubber tappers union organizers, leaders of this movement, was actually assassinated by cattle ranchers in 1988 uh, for, for this work. Other people also died in the process, but they ended up building a movement that could win power. And the way that they went about things is they established protected areas, they titled indigenous communities, and they created these extractive reserves that were guaranteed uh, for rubber tappers to do their work. Uh, with a lot of protections. And they built up a social state and urban centers to really fund this stuff, right? Um, there was no market-based solutions that were really at play here. And then later on over time, uh, the kind of market conservation community wanted to pay Acre to compensate them for how much they had conserved. Uh, but it wasn't that much money. It was really costly to do all the monitoring. And the social state ended up starting to weaken there. Um, and when Bolsonaro won power, you actually saw the state of Acre elect a cattle rancher as governor. And I think that, again, I, I'm not an expert in Acre. I, don't, I haven't lived there or anything, but from what I understand, that was largely because people were disillusioned with the social state not having enough. And so I think a logic of repair for historical harm nationally and internationally would compel funding those types of things unconditionally, right? Not conditioning payments for or funding for social services on how much people are not deforesting, but guaranteeing them and in doing so, reducing the need to deforest as a whole, um, assuming that you're also guarding against uh, private actors from deforesting kind of willy nilly. Fighting climate change, fighting deforestation through public investment rather than private investment. So you write that the, the well, you point out that this, you know, these are all failed market based approaches. So are they based and that, you know, well, that they are based on making money while saving the rainforest, making it profitable for the private sector. Is it possible to make a profit and save the rainforest? I basically don't think so. And I think that uh, this assumption that we need to be able to, to allow for profits to continue while saving the rainforests or while conserving tropical forests is so prevalent in uh, a lot of the ideas that people have. Um, not, ju not just, you know, the kind of business interests themselves, but also folks that work in conservation, uh, that imagining other possibilities has really become difficult. And th this is where I really do have a lot of respect for the kind of people who have been thinking about degrowth by default. All of it could be converted to, I'm, I'm, this is not ecologically possible, but for the sake of a thought experiment, converted to oil palm, right? Well, the amount of profits that industry could generate from that much oil palm is tremendous. 
But if you instead assume, and so the, the opportunity cost that you need to compensate to preserve that forest becomes astronomical. Essentially, you're sort of locking yourself into being held hostage by uh, industry at a level of ransom that will never be payable. But if instead you assume that people, movements, states perhaps that represent them, communities that are hopefully empowered to make these decision, decisions autonomously and have sovereignty over their lands are able to say, no, these lands are not for sale. These areas are never going to be converted to oil palm. There is no opportunity cost of converting this land because we're not going to allow this land to be converted under any circumstances. Well, then all of a sudden, uh, the amount of money that you need to keep these landscapes that we absolutely need to keep intact or keep pretty much how they are today uh, becomes a lot less. If instead of thinking, okay, communities that live in port forests are poor and they're going to deforest to not be poor. So we need to find ways to, you know, help them produce commodities like chocolate and oil palm uh, and coffee and, you know, soy and cattle that the global North consumes primarily also some somewhat in the global South, we need to make that more sustainable and pay them to do that in a better way. If instead you think about it as what do these people need to live well and continue to uh, live the way that they want to live? What does the world owe them for the historic harms that have happened? Uh, all of a sudden, it actually, I think, becomes cheaper and does become possible to imagine uh, a future where people live well, but don't deforest. Now, that's very different from a future where deforestation is reduced and profits remain high, right? but it is consonant with reducing deforestation and maintaining quality of life. So I think that thinking about quality of life is far more productive, far more essential, far more correct than thinking about profits and having that kind of a win-win. And this whole misleading framework of opportunity costs and how the, those opportunity costs are just mythical, they're just fictitious, and they're just used as an excuse for continued extractive practices that lead to uh, climate change. I, that, that whole idea of opportunity costs has always really bugged me. So these yeah, markets... Yeah, they, 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 they basically assume that opportunity costs are sort of like a law of nature that kind of fall from the sky like mana or whatever. You know, it's it's very, very silly. Right. And these market-based approaches, they don't work, yet they attract all sorts of funding. Do they get as much funding as they do because they do not work? Because it allows for the government to appear to be, and, and corporations, to appear to, be, to appear to be fighting deforestation, climate change, without slowing access to fossil fuels, which fuel the global economy. Are market-based approaches funded because they do not work? I mean, I think if you look at LEAF, which is, again, this new annoying acronym, Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance, um, which was a star at Glasgow. I'm, I'm sure I, I wasn't at Glasgow, but I have been to international climate negotiations and I kind of know what they're like. They're basically this really internal sort of validation machine for technocrats. And I know this because I, full disclosure, I used to be something of a technocrat. My first job uh, after grad school, I worked for a big international sort of uh, nonprofit research institute that um, has, has a lot of great people that, that work for it, but ultimately uh, is funded by a lot of European aid agencies. And as a result, is part of this sort of, you know, international climate negotiation world where market solutions are very much, uh, you know, at the core of it. And when you're at these sort of COP events, everyone presents on their brilliant ideas. People present their new technologies for monitoring forests. Others present their new uh genius economic instruments for, uh, you know, uh, securitizing and, uh, you know, regularizing uh, carbon as a commodity, essentially. Anyway, so I think it's just really vital to remember that LEAF, this new sort of iteration of this that attracted billions in funding just 
recently has Amazon, Unilever, Walmart, Delta, BlackRock as key participants in it. So I, I, I don't even think I need to answer your question directly. I feel like that speaks for itself. We have been speaking with Ashwin Ravi Kumar, who wrote the Trouble article to save the rainforest, provide healthcare, education, and services for those who protect them. Ashwin is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Amherst College. His research and interests involve deforestation in the Amazon. And when we start having office hours again, you will be able to meet Ashwin, hopefully, in the very near future. So one last question for you. And as you know, our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response so what's it going to take for the global community and its leadership to abandon market-based solutions to climate change that have proven not to work it's going to take huge mass movements in the global north it's going to take i think explicitly centering opposition to this by folks that are in a position to have leverage over these things so many of these negotiations happen behind closed doors we're not really privy to a lot of them. Um, a lot of the decisions about how to pursue uh, conservation policy are made in you know, the offices of USAID, for example, which is now helmed by uh, Samantha Power, sort of a you know, big uh, you know, liberal humanitarian intervention kind of person from, from the Obama years, right? So I think the fact that they are not, that these decisions are made so often by technocrats who are not subject to public accountability is a big problem. And so what do we need to do about that? We need to drag these issues into the public sphere. Um, we, uh, in the climate justice movement, need to really explicitly talk about reparations, I think, as a model for how we think about conservation, um, that places like the Amazon are so vital that we urgently need to marshal funding. And again, the, the, the funniest thing about it is it's actually not that much money globally because there's not that many people that live there, relatively speaking, um, instead of these market solutions. So I think just outright opposition to market solutions, a movement that powerfully says, no, these solutions do not work. Instead, we need to be thinking about non-commodified services that we provide to people is going to be huge. And I, I think the good news is that um, a lot of the discussions about the Green New Deal, for example, in the US have really centered this thinking domestically, um, that we wanna be thinking about public housing. We wanna be thinking about you know, Medicare for all as part of a climate strategy, for example. To me, really what this conversation is, is doing or what I was sort of trying to do with this piece too, um, is to apply that logic globally, right? Um, Non-commodified solutions, big public programs uh, as environmental solutions, um, because they haven't been thought of as environmental solutions in the past, but I think fundamentally they are. Ushwin, thank you so much for being on the show. Next time we see each other, the first and second beer are on me, I promise. And I'm really looking forward to hanging out with you at Office Hours again. And as soon as we decide that we're going to have them, I'll immediately contact you to know it's happening again. Really miss hanging out with you, and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you in 2022, physically, actually face-to-face. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chuck. All right. Take care. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. If that conversation with Ushwin on Amazonian deforestation, fossil fuel extraction, and 
colonialism when it comes down to it. If all that was in some way enlightening to you or made you realize that, yes, this is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for your support. This week's question, Mel, is how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Again, you can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question, Mel, at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's I said this week a lot in those last two sentences moment of truth Jeff continues to try to spread positivity who knew that Jeff was actually doing that this whole time Sebastian do you have more of our listeners answers to this week's question from hell but of course uh-huh. um <laughs> Rowan Wernham says when your lungs fill with liquid and your eyes pop out from cuffing <laughs> I thought that's when you knew that you were on Mars and you found out that it had no atmosphere. Isn't that the end of Total Recall? I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, yeah, that's the, the end of the beginning of Total Recall. Uh, at least the, the good Total Recall. There's a bad Total Recall. Oh, yeah. And by but, the way, spoiler alert for those of you who have not seen that movie that's now 37 years old. Um, <laughs> yes. No Wack Wolf. No oh, I, 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 yeah. I, I, will not, I won't try to interpret that too much. Uh, says, which one? <laughs> Which pandemic? Yeah, That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, basically. Very good argument. Um, Warren L. says, Legends say a robin will crow at midnight and rivers will flow backwards. <laughs> All right, then. Brendan S. says, Should be about 20 minutes before the meteor hits. <laughs> God. Oh, we have such an uplifting view of our future here on This Is Hell, don't we? I mean, it kind of comes with, uh, you know, it's all in the title. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chet Ev says, when Windows 12, I mean, the next pandemic, <laughs> is ready for launch. It's um, a virus I don't want. Yeah, and uh, going hand in hand with that, Kim G says, when Bill Gates flips the switch. <laughs> and David S says, when the dove returns in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Or when we're all dead. Oh, okay. And finally, John T says, when media from across the political spectrum starts suggesting that Despite surging cases, hospitalizations, and death rates, maybe we all should learn to live with COVID. <laughs> During uh, the earliest part of the pandemic, I, w- I was at the grocery store, and the person who was uh, checking out our, our groceries, you know, the cashier, uh, they told us that um, we asked about the vaccine and when it becomes available, if they'll be taking it. And they, I think that was the, ex- the very first person I heard say, there's no way I'm going to let Bill Gates have access access to my body. I'm pretty sure. And that was like in April of 2020. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I actually heard somebody physically say in front of me, not just seeing it online somewhere, their fears of Bill Gates and the vaccine. And I can't blame you, but Jesus, talk about not focusing on the right things. How about the fact that he owns over 250,000 acres of land in the United States all over in every state? You can email us, message us via Facebook or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and or topic suggestions or tell us anything you'd like to share with us on the show and we'll likely read it on air. And if you have any follow-ups to what has happened on the show, please contact us about those as well. 
and we that's what we have right here. A couple of follow-ups from last week's show. You may have heard me reading a guest suggestion we got from Andy B. last week. Andy suggested James Muldoon, a researcher on digital platforms and digital labor at Autonomy in the UK and author of the new book, Platform Socialism, which we're looking into right now. Andy explained, I heard a pretty good interview with Muldoon on the blockchain socialist podcast and thought they might make a good guest and book to read. Then I said the guest suggestion sounded great, and I asked, is the podcast titled Blockchain Socialism supposed to be ironic? And if not, can anyone please explain blockchain socialism? Not that the podcast, uh, not the podcast, but what blockchain socialism would actually look like. Well, Felipe K. in San Jose, Costa Rica hasn't answered for us. Felipe replies, hi, Chuck, I hope you are fine. While I was listening to your interview with Paolo Sorbello on Kazakhstan, I heard that you wondered what does blockchain socialism mean? I am not an expert in politics, but I am heavily studying blockchain technology. Blockchain technology is a database stored on a network often supported by a community in which the information stored will be far more difficult to modify than the larger when the larger the community becomes. Plus, it is visible for everyone, hence there is not such a thing as privileged information. Each member that sustains the database for the community has one vote, at least for some versions, and an equal vo- voice, so it is democratic. Finally, the larger the community, the more difficult it gets to censor or hack. I guess blockchain socialism would be a political movement which has crystal walls and socialist ideas described in Alvaro Cunal's book, Cheers, Felipe. So Alvaro Cunal, C-U-N-H-A-L, was a Portuguese communist revolutionary and politician and a leader of the Portuguese opposition for years. However, I don't know which book of Kunal's uh, Felipe is referring or referencing, but crystal walls and socialist ideas, that sounds good, although I am very skeptical of blockchain, especially its impact on climate change. We also heard from Tucker L., who has plenty more questions. Tucker writes, heard your call out about the Blockchain Socialist podcast and that you'd like the concept laid out. I'm aware of the podcast, but have not really been following it. But since blockchains slash Bitcoin became popular a decade or more ago, I've been thinking a lot about what is now being called blockchain socialism. If socialism is about democratizing the control of enterprises so that more people get to decide how production happens, who has to suffer the effects, what is considered production versus reproduction, etc. In a society trained to value property in exchange, a lot of the power to decide how enterprises run comes down to the production of currency. From there, it goes to who maintains that currency, who receives it, who keeps the ledger of credits and debts, and who collects it in return. A blockchain, the technology underlying Bitcoin, is an algorithmic decentralized ledger. I say algorithmic because the way that the blockchain grows is governed by programming. That programming could have built-in control so that the propagation of the chain of blocks can be voted on. There have been many variations of turning a blockchain into a democratic mechanism, most as an afterthought, unfortunately. But I am unaware of a blockchain whose algorithm is itself democratic. Most attempts I've been told or I've, I've seen hold the algorithmic controls for how the blockchain propagates in a tight group of founders, engineers, elites, whatever you want to call them, which does not sound democratic. Oftentimes, this tight control is necessary to combat bad actors. 
necessary is in quotes, by the way, people who would attempt to manipulate the infrastructure of the blockchain. The control of that propagation is important because that sets how much currency there is, the rate of production of the currency, the amount of the security of the privacy of those exchanges that can be made with the currency and many other things. The Fed's dollars, especially since they aren't made of a valuable material, have exchange power because it is backed by the state and the military and police powers that may or may not protect that state. So it sufficiently, a sufficiently socialist state could use a currency produced by a democratically controlled blockchain. Now more questions arrive, starting with how much democracy, as in who gets to vote on how the blockchain runs, who maintains the infrastructure required for the blockchain to run, the servers, the networks, etc. How much infrastructure is required? How much energy is required? Is the blockchain actually necessary to produce a symbol of exchange? These are all things a sufficiently socialist state would have to handle. The Fed is not democratic in its production of currency, and as your past guest Giannis Varoufakis says, this produces two spheres, one where the state can play performative democracy and another where democracy is non-existent. And I would suggest is completely undermined. A socialist state would have to conjoin the spheres it is, if it is going to have exchange-based production of goods at all. Another aspect would be gaining trust in that blockchain as democratically controlled by a sufficiently socialist state or perhaps non-state assemblage, but my knowledge of anarchic assemblies is insufficient to speculate. What is people's daily experience with that currency? Is it easy to use? Is it totally digital or physically pr uh, printable? Do you need other technologies to use or hold it? Because that could lead to inequality. Can those technologies be publicly owned, accountable, and freely accessible to all? Is it durably held and insured so that you can rely on it to be there? Is it given out freely as a basic income? Can it be inherited or accumulated somehow? And the questions continue. Cheers, Tucker. That was an exceptional answer, Tucker. I really appreciate it. And now I'm wondering if any of the questions that you've asked were answered this week when it was revealed that El Salvador's national economy, which had switched to Bitcoin, was collapsing after one year of using the currency. And the IMF, not an organization that we should trust and we should be skeptical of any of their actions, may withhold much-needed loans for El Salvador unless they drop the experiment with Bitcoin. We also got a DM via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio from Flying Needle about their answer to last week's question from Hell. Flying Needle's answer to the question, what have you been putting off, was putting out. But really, starting a podcast with my 74-year-old best friend who used to be an international drug smuggler and lived on Howard Taylor's land on Kauai in a treehouse in the 1970s. When that answer was read on air by either Sebastian or Richard, I, I mentioned how I nev had never heard of Howard Taylor, and I, if I remember correctly, whoever was running the board also agreed with me that they had never heard of Howard Taylor. Well, we got a follow-up from Flying Needle who tells us Howard Taylor is the late brother of the actress Elizabeth Taylor. He bought land on the north coast of Kauai and wanted to build a house, but the local government wouldn't allow it. So he invited a bunch of hippie outcasts to live on it. There were 27 tree houses built, I think until the government cleared them out and burnt the dwellings down. There's a documentary called Taylor's Camp about it. Thank you, Flying Needle. I'd never heard that Elizabeth Taylor's late brother allowed a 
dozens of hippies to live in his trees in Hawaii, which got me interested in the documentary, but I could not find a documentary called Taylor Camp, but I did find a listing online of a 2010 film titled Paradise Found, Taylor Camp, Kauai, 1969-1977, but I could not find anywhere where you could actually see that movie. I did find a book of photography on the Taylor Commune called End of Paradise, and then I found a documentary called the edge of paradise, and the only way I could uh, f- find to see it is by using a time machine to go back in time to 7.30 Saturday evening, July 13th, 2019, and somehow get to Kilauea and the Porter Pavilion at Anena Howe Community Park in Kilauea. So I don't think I'll be seeing the movie in the very near future. Here's how the filmmakers describe the story. In 1969, Howard Taylor, brother of actress Elizabeth Taylor, bails out a ragtag band of young mainlanders, jailed for vagrancy, and invites them on his oceanfront land. Soon, waves of hippies, surfers, and troubled Vietnam vets find their way to this clothing-optional, pot-friendly treehouse village at the end of the road of Kauai's North Shore. Ultimate hippies fantasy, order without rules, perched in a pristine forest alongside a tropical beach in paradise, until the locals decided it's time for them to go. If anyone knows how I can see this documentary, feel free to email me, chuck at thisishell.com. But the bigger story is Flying Needle, a regular listener who nearly every week supplies an answer to our weekly question from hell for our listening audience, is putting off starting a podcast with a 74-year-old friend who used to be an international drug dealer and lived on Howard Taylor's land on Kauai in a treehouse in the 70s. Flying Needle, stop putting that off. I want to hear that podcast, and I will happily subscribe. Just tell me how and when, and we'll mention it here on the show and share it with everyone online as well. Finally, Kim A. is concerned about my health, as am I. Very concerned about my physical well-being, which is incredibly kind of Kim. Kim writes, Dear Chuck, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with the same thing you have. For those of you who have not heard, I was diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease with esophagitis, or gitis, don't know, without hemorrhage. Kim says her brother-in-law with the same condition is a rather grumpy, opinionated fellow, far from inclined to listen to anyone, especially regarding alternative ideas. And I gotta admit, Kim, I'm open to all sorts of alternative ideas, but when it comes to alternative medicine and how so-called natural supplements are completely unregulated in the United States, yeah, I'm a bit skeptical. Kim explains, my acupuncturist friend Recommended using a stomach for it formula. I gave my grumpy brother-in-law some and expected to see the bottle wither away in his refrigerator. Refrigerator. Instead, he claimed that I had given him the best Christmas present ever. The best Christmas present he had ever received. Quite out of character for him. You can take it while using the bloody medicine you've been prescribed. And I didn't know she knew a side effect of the bloody medicine I've been prescribed. And if it works, you can then slowly stop taking that stuff. The alternative medicine Kim A. got her brother-in-law is Lily of the Desert Aloe Vera Stomach Formula, which Kim says I can get at Vitacost.com. Ken en- Kim ends with good luck, much better than suffering more. Ciao, Kim A. Listener since 2000, since the year 2000. Thanks, Kim. I am so tired of the muscle cramps and acid reflux and far more disgusting side effects from which you alluded to. 
that are caused by my diverticulitis, and I'm willing to try just about anything. So I mentioned this to my girlfriend because she's smarter than I am and knows far more about alternative medicine than I do. She had read about it and talked to people who had similar success with aloe vera, so I'm definitely going to check it out. Thanks again, Kim. I really appreciate your concern for my physical well-being. So, Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow, uh, we will be talking to Kevin Kleiman about his Jacobin article, A Vaccine Apartheid Has Reinforced U.S. Empire. And then in the moment of truth, truth, Jeff Dorchin continues to try to spread positivity. I had no idea he was spreading positivity. And by the way, uh, USA, USA. Uh, thanks to today's guest, Ashwin Ravikumar, who wrote the Trouble article to save the rainforest, provide health care, education, and services for those who protect them. An article you can find at the Trouble, the-trouble.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Sebastian Vopper. Thank you very much, Sebastian, for producing today's show. And we're not joking. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>